Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Book Network's page for Science, Technology, and Society. I'm Patrick Slaney. Today, I'm talking to Robert Westman about his new book, The Copernican Question, Prognostication, Skepticism, and Celestial Order. It's an extraordinary book written by one of the finest historians of science. Bringing in at nearly 700 oversized double-column pages, um, the book exhaustively examines the science of the stars in order to understand the problem that drove Copernicus and later engagements with Copernicanism. Far more than a reception study, Westman uncovers the practices, particularly of prognostication, that delimited the conceptual space available to scholars of the stars. Building on his earlier identification of the Wittenberg interpretation of Copernicus's ideas, Westman shows how confession, patronage, friendships, in university networks, all factored into the multifaceted appeal of Copernican ideas, illustrating the difficulty of identifying a single unitary Copernicanism in the three generations after the circulation of Copernicus's own ideas. Painstakingly researched, often to the point of tracing who had access to which copies of books and their all-important annotations, the book asks us to reevaluate the scientific revolution in favor of more nuanced understandings of early modern scientific movements. Hi, Bob. Hi. Welcome to the New Book Network's page for Science, Technology, and Society. Nice to be here. (laughs) We're glad to have you. Um, We're talking about your new book today, um, The Copernican Question, Prognostication, uh, Prognostication, Skepticism and Celestial Order, uh, which came out last year? Last year. Yeah, 2011. July 2011. Okay. Um, from University of California Press. Before we uh, jump into the book, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and about how you came to this book, because I know you've been working on it for quite a while. Yes, uh, sure. Well, uh, you know, I've been interested in the in the topic, Copernicus, and, um, you know, the whole area of the scientific revolution basically throughout my career, and I've um, uh, published various pieces about it over over the course of that time. Um, in the late 1970s, I thought I would write a book about the, the way I thought of it then as the reception of Pernicus's theory. Um, but as I got into thinking about it, uh, it, it uh, you know, one big problem after another presented itself. And in addition to that, the uh, you know, people working in this area, there are lots of very, very good scholars working on different aspects uh, of, of this period, let's say roughly 1500 to 1700. So you, I, I came to think of them almost as armed encampments. Uh, lots of scholars studying Newton and Galileo and Kepler and so forth. So, so to engage with the topic, meant engaging with, with a vast literature um, with many different interpretations in play. Uh, and so to people who are unfamiliar with the historiography of this, this period, 
maybe completely unaware of just how much interpretive investment uh, there is uh, in, in in ways of reading various characters. Okay, but then in the <clears throat> mid uh, 1980s, uh, Leviathan and the Air Pump appeared. That's a book I think everybody knows. By Shapin uh, and Schaefer. Exactly. Um, here I think I will reveal to you that I was one of the readers of the manuscript uh, for the for Princeton University Press. And um, I knew it was going to be an important book when I read it uh, in manuscript. Um, and um, I think that book, um, you know, certainly gave impetus uh, in the direction of local studies of science. And, uh, you know, another example in that area would be Martin Rudwick's work <coughs> on uh, the gentlemen of geology in the Victorian period, um, uh, and many more examples that, that one could mention here. So I became involved in that perspective because I thought it looked very fruitful, um, and I, I began to, some of my own work in the in the late 1980s reflected that, that turn. Um, but all the while, I was thinking about this this larger project, and and how to how to manage it. Well, um, by the time I actually started writing the book, it was in 1991, and the question that came up immediately was, well, how do you write a book that deals with a period of you know almost 200 years? Um, because of the turn to local studies, because of the rise of the Sociology of Scientific Knowledge, SSK, um, that was the direction things were, were moving in. Um, I was very sympathetic to that. At the same time, I felt that there was a need for a long-term study. So basically, my book is an attempt to, to do both of those things. On the one hand, to write a history of the long durée, yeah. and on the other hand, not to give up the commitment to studying science as local knowledge. Therefore, another way to describe this would be to say that I try to write the book um, in, in the idiom of local knowledge, but but also pointing out the uh, the limitations of the anthropological toolkit, as I call it. Um, and, and so then the question that I have to address, <clears throat> really, is a problem that Bruno Latour pointed out <clears throat> in the late 1980s, this question of how does knowledge move between local communities. Mm-hmm. So that's really the way I've tried to conceptualize the project. Um, I, I mean, I think that's really ambitious, it's really prescient, and I think it's... I mean, I think one of the hardest things for historians of science to do today is to think about. I mean, well, I think many of us have this commitment to want to think about the long durée, but it's not easy given, I mean, I think the richness and the and the power of so many of the local studies and of the lo- this idea of locality itself, right? Yeah. Um, but we'll, I, I mean, I, I certainly have questions about the long durée, um, but I want to start. Um, more with this question of, I think, I mean, you raised this a little bit yourself about that the SSK as a, a, you know, as a response 
two, I think, partly um, traditional understandings of the discipline of the history of science. And I want to start um, at the very beginning, actually, with a with one of your epigrams. Um, and I'm, I just I have a couple questions about why you included it. And I'm going to read it because I think it's quite rich. Um, keeping in mind, I read it this as a quotation that's partly about the disciplines of Copernicus's time, that think about the stars, but also about its, the discipline of the history of science itself and the role of the Copernican question in the formation of that discipline. So here's what Giovanni Pico della Mirandola wrote in 1496, and you put it at the very beginning of your book. How many people who are immersed in a discipline are used to reducing everything to it? And not because of a desire to explain everything by it, but because these things really seem like that to them. What happens to them is like someone who walks who walks immersed in snow um, to whom everything ends up appearing white, like someone who loves in vain and sees the face of his beloved in everything. So he who is a theologian and nothing but a theologian takes everything back to divine causes. He who is a doctor takes everything back to corporal states. He who is a physicist to the natural principles of things, the mathematician like the Pythagoreans, to numbers and figures. In the same way, the Chaldeans are entirely occupied by the measurement of celestial movements and the observations of the positions of the star. And all the things were stars to them, and they willingly took them back to the stars. So, I mean, one reason to include Pico in your epigram is because Pico is actually quite important to Copernicus himself. Um, yes. but I'm wondering if um, you might have something to something to say about the way that the, quest, the Copernican question as the question of why Copernicus was doing what he did um, was kind of a fundamental but neglected question in the discipline of history of science itself. Um, and sort of what, what are the implications of your revision, of your opening up that Copernican question for the discipline of the history of science? Well, well good good place to begin, and, <laughs> and, and that is a lovely quote, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. Um, because it, it speaks both to the period I'm studying, but it also, it also resonates with our own subject and uh, our own studies. Um, so one way to, um, to phrase the, the, the question you just raised is, um, what was the question to which the heliocentric theory was the answer? Mm-hmm. And um, I do think that if you know if you consult any textbook of the history of science or any uh, general study that that um, uh, addresses Copernicus, mm-hmm. you will not you will not find that question raised. Mm-hmm. It, it has only been raised in the very specialized literature around Copernicus, and uh, and that has never made its way into the general into the general literature that uh, you know everybody studies when they're just getting into the into the subject. So I think that's one short answer why this question hasn't been apparent. Um, now, uh, well, but let me stop you there because yes. Cop- Copernicus himself and the idea of a Copernican revolution has been sort of very important. And you sort of you talk a lot about Kuhn's the Copernican revolution, and I think you know even people that don't that know perhaps know better um, still use that book as a, a sort of a wonderful teaching book in particular yes. um, as really. Uh, you know, Kuhn is, I think, one of the foundational figures for the discipline, but setting out what 
good scholarship was like in the discipline, and also I think maybe the ethos of the discipline. Right. I, well, I couldn't agree more. Okay. Um, I used that book, the Copernican Revolution, in the first the first time I ever taught the scientific revolution, and I still use it. Yeah. So I I certainly have enormous respect for it, and and it's not only for what he achieved, it's for when he wrote it. Yeah. After all, the book came out in 1957, mm-hmm. and um, nobody was writing uh, with that kind of uh, rigor and kind of philosophical sensitivity at the time that Kuhn wrote that book, and given that he he wrote it in the context of a course that he had been invited to give at Harvard, which was for, um, you know, the general science requirement for humanities students, mm-hmm. he had to strive to write it in such a way that he wouldn't scare people off. <laughs> and I don't think that problem has gone away. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I think that's part of the success of the book is tied up to the way in which he formulated the project, where he formulated it, and... Um, and of course, because he was a great stylist, you know, the way he was able to use language. Um, so it is certainly a book for which I have continuing respect. And in fact, in 1994, I published an article in ISIS uh, <laughs> called A Second Look. There was a series of ISIS articles in that series, uh, and it's about the Copernican Revolution. So um, I've, I've sort of said what I had to say about it in that context. But one particular problem in that book that mm-hmm. I light upon is Kuhn's handling of astrology. Mm-hmm. And it's very clear that he knew that astrology was very important to his story. And he says it in, really in so many words. He says, astrology was the primary motive for wrestling with the problem of the planets. Um, and he was right. I mean, that's, that's a true statement. But then he says, but Copernicus was an exception. Yeah. So here you have the idea that, that somehow Copernicus, you know, was immune to these currents, mm-hmm. which so everybody else is doing, but not him. Mm-hmm. And as you, as you can well imagine, that would, that sort of claim lends itself to um, you know, celebrating Copernicus as having resisted astrology right. uh, and, and so forth. But um, so obviously one thing that I'm trying to do is to say, no, he wasn't immune to that. In fact, he was he was just as involved in it as everybody else. Um, and that is a, you know, that's a kind of a dangerous statement to make in the context of the historiography. Um, There are going to be, there are people who I think will not like that uh, one bit. And it's partly, uh, you know, it's protecting a certain image of Copernicus, um, and partly it's it's protecting interpretations that have been around for a long time. Yeah. And I think also an understanding of what the history of science is, right? As a as a history of a, something that's progressive and secular and reasonable, reason-driven, right, for a very narrow understanding think, of the person. Yes, I think that's, I, for some people, that is, that, that's a good description. Yeah. Um, 
let me let, uh, let me jump right in because I actually have a question about um, prognostication and and this long durée um, I guess point of view because I mean there's so much going on in this book and and uh, as you said one of your main goals is to think about um, or to try and tie these very strong local studies um, with a with a long durée story about prognostication in particular well prognostication as a recurring theme. Um, but it isn't a simple story about sort of the importance of prognostication and, and disappearance of prognostication sort of by the time you get to Newton or something, where these traditional stories of the scientific revolution end. Um, early on, you show... Do you need to stop? You can keep going. Okay. Early on, you, sh- you show that there's like a variety of attitudes towards prognostication, um, and the prognosticators themselves differ a lot. Um, what can you tell us, I guess, about the local circumstances um, of prognostication that matter to Copernicus, um, and then, I guess, the, the implications for a long-durée story about the scientific revolution. Right. Um, well, one thing to notice, I'm going to take this in, in, in the opposite order to which you asked it, but um, I, I don't use the term scientific revolution. No. In fact, um, in the conclusion to my book, I actually propose the term early modern scientific movement. And um, uh, so I'm, I'm consciously trying to avoid using that term, and I do have a kind of running um, uh, argument with Kuhn okay. about his, his usages. But to go back to the earlier part of your question concerning um, the, the prognostication scene for Copernicus, um, it's it's located in two primary settings. First of all, in Krakow, where he did the first three years of his undergraduate education, and then subsequently in Bologna, where he spent four years um, studying canon law, church law. Um, now, already in Krakow, there were uh, members of the faculty who were issuing annual astrological prognostications. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Krakow was one of the sites, local sites, where this sort of activity was conducted. When Copernicus got to Bologna, he lived with uh, Domenico Maria Novara, uh, who was teaching at the university uh, in the arts faculty. Uh, and as part of his job, he was required to issue an astrological forecast for the entire region of Bologna every year. That was part of his contract. Mm-hmm. And um, people basically, you know, know about this. If you look in the Dictionary of Scientific Biography, you'll find some references. But nobody really has <clears throat> devoted any serious time to studying those prognostications, let alone discovering where they are. So part of what I had to do was find as many of them as I could find. And then secondly, try to figure out what Novara was actually doing. And then third, to ask, you know, was there a possible connection with Copernicus and his thinking? So this is kind of, the, these are kind of the elements uh, of the discussion that, you know, had to be worked up in order for me to get closer to the question of how did Copernicus ask himself the question that led to the heliocentric theory. Right. So 
Where does uh, Pico fit in all of that? Um, Pico um, lived a very short life. Yeah. He was only 31 years old when he died. He left an enormous uh, quantity of uh, scholarship. Um, he died in 1494, just as the French uh, troops invaded Florence, uh, <clears throat> throwing the Medici family out of power. And Copernicus arrived in Bologna two years later. Uh, three months after Copernicus arrived, mm-hmm. uh, pardon me, three months before Copernicus arrived, uh, Pico's attack on astrology appeared in print mm-hmm. in Bologna. Mm-hmm. And the publisher of this work was the same publisher who was issuing some of Domenico Maria Novara's astrological forecasts. So um, that was a connection that I had seen nowhere in the literature. Nobody had ever mentioned this before. And it's the sort of connection that I was sensitive to because I was looking at possible local connections. And um, <clears throat> so uh, I have Copernicus arriving at a moment of enormous um, conflict. Yeah. Now, one of the, one of the points that I think would be worth making here is the question: Why was astrology important? Um, and and if I could address that for a couple of minutes, I think that might sort of help us sure. uh, understand uh, the the larger context here. Um, <clears throat> Today, of course, astrology has a very bad reputation among most people. Um, yet, it continues to have a following uh, in the newspapers, mm-hmm. uh, on various websites. In other words, it's part of popular culture. Mm-hmm. And I think it's been part of popular culture, you know, since at least Copernicus's time, but exclusively so since the 18th century. Okay. Um, now, um, there are two major contributors, I believe, to the, to the surge in astrological forecast. And the first cause was massive and, and um, extensive warfare in Europe. Mm-hmm. And the second was um, the um, major, two major epidemics. The first was the Black Death. Uh, 1347-1351 wiped out between a quarter and a third of the European population, completely decimated the cities of Europe, um, and the second major epidemic, <clears throat> at least in, in the context of Copernicus's lifetime, was the arrival of syphilis. Mm-hmm. And syphilis came in with the French troops with the invasion of Italy by Charles VIII in 1494, um, and in fact, the word syphilis was coined exactly in that time period. So there's a relationship between war and disease, and um, you know when you have warfare, infrastructure is destroyed, people's mm-hmm. immune systems are affected, mm-hmm. the troops are moving between different regions. Uh, I mean. Unfortunately, we still have this. <laughs> yeah. But at that time, 
if you ask yourself the question, supposing you were a doctor, yeah. you know, what did you have in your toolkit? Right. Not very much. So the stars became a very significant resource for the physicians, um, and they became very attentive to all the ancient literature um, on astrology, much of which had been translated by the Arabs into Arabic and then in turn into Latin. And then with the introduction of printing around 1451, a lot of these treatises started to be put into print. So I think one has to keep in mind this background in order to appreciate what it would mean to attack astrology, which is what Pico did in 1496. Uh, let me put this very simply. To attack astrology was really to attack a whole system of social and political arrangements. It wasn't just a subject. Right. Um, and it wasn't just casting individuals' horoscopes. Uh, so all the kings who were involved in battles with other kings, they all had their own astrologers. And these astrologers had libraries. And uh, the universities, many of the universities had members of the faculty who cast prognostications for the region in which the universities were located. Yeah. So there is a connection here then a uh, serious connection between the political order, uh, the universities, and the church. Yeah. And that's, I would say that that uh, is the institutional space in which this conflict about astrology should be located. And that's what I try to set up in the book. And that's what I try to follow uh, throughout the whole history of the of the theme. I know that I think I think it's Tony Grafton, but I don't know that it, that it's original to him. Has, has compared kind of the importance of it, of of um, astrology in Copernicus's period to the sort of importance of economic discourse in our own yep. time period, right? Um, yes. Uh, as very as similar in uh, their roles in advising all aspects of everyday life, but also of structuring um, social political life as well, I think, right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He's not the only one to have drawn that parallel, but I would agree with it. <laughs> I mean, in a sense, you could say, and now here we're perhaps stepping into the classroom, <laughs> but something you would say to students perhaps is to say that, look, um, the science of the stars was the science of predicting uh, social and political events yeah. based on the stars. Yeah. And what changed, of course, was that the stars were ultimately rejected as the right explanatory framework and, and the study of, well, the making of prognostications became a purely earthbound subject. Right. So Copernicus then emerges as a defender and reformer of astrology as well as astronomy. Yes, he does, in, at least in my accounting, yeah. uh, except for this one little problem, and yeah. that is, he doesn't. There's not a word about astrology in any of his in any of his writings. Right. And that, for other historians, is a problem. Right. Because they say, well, 
if it was so important to him, then why doesn't he say anything about it? Right. And of course, I worried about this a lot as I was thinking through this question. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and one of the answers I give to it really has to do with the uh, the rhetorical genres in which Copernicus was operating. Yeah. So, De Revolutionibus, his his major work, is modeled after Claudius Ptolemy's Almagest. And if you look at Ptolemy's Almagest, you'll see there isn't a word about astrology in it, because it's all about the mathematical models that enable you to predict the positions of the planets. So Ptolemy wrote a separate treatise called the Tetrabiblos, which means the four books, and that's where he deals with the astrology. And I think Copernicus is just following that, that model. format. So, so that's one, um, I think, important thing to be to be said about Copernicus and astrology. Um, now, that's why Reticus is very important to this part of the story. Reticus was Copernicus's first disciple. Came from the University of Wittenberg. Uh, which was the center of Lutheranism. Mm-hmm. Ernicus is a Catholic, not only a Catholic, he's a member of, you know, he's a canon. Mm-hmm. He's, he's an administrative member of the church. Uh, Redicus spends over two years living with him in his house. And yeah. while he's there, Copernicus lets him see the manuscript yeah. that, that he's been hugging for almost four decades. <laughs> and Redicus is then allowed to write an account of Copernicus's theory. And um, and he does so very quickly. It's basically a book he couldn't have written if he hadn't had Copernicus's manuscript sitting on the table. Right. And this uh, is the, the Narratio Primi, right? The Narratio Prima, right. So and it, so that comes out um, in 1540, mm-hmm. and then the next year it comes out again. So obviously the first... Issue sold out. Yeah. Um, well, in that work, uh, Reticus says, if only um, Pico de la Mirandola had had my teacher's book, yeah. and he was writing his book, he wouldn't have he wouldn't have written the things that he said about astronomy and astrology. I'm I'm paraphrasing that loosely. Right. That but that's explicitly in there. Now, that what that shows us is that Redicus is very conscious of, the, of, of Pico's of, problem. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Of Pico's importance. Yeah. Now, here's the way it was handled before I came along. <laughs> okay. Uh, just just to give you an idea of what some of the shoals that had to be navigated here. Um, Edward Rosen, who was a very prolific contributor to the Copernicus uh, historiography said, well, look, uh, Redicus, yeah, sure, Redicus believed in astrology, just like lots of other people. Yeah. Uh, he was, uh, he was really overheated. He was, he was incredibly invested in it, but this was not true of Copernicus. Mm-hmm. So, that's the way that, that Redicus was handled. Mm-hmm. But what I'm saying is, well, look, um, Redicus wouldn't have been allowed to publish this mm-hmm. book without Copernicus's permission. Mm-hmm. They're living together for two years. For two years, yeah. And uh, so I I regard that as as you know not an issue. Right. Um, 
At the same time, it shows that Copernicus was aware of Pico. Has to have been. And uh, and the substantive, I think, the substantive, I guess, contribution of Copernicus in responding to Pico is that I think is that Copernicus has an answer to the problem of celestial order, right? That's right. Right. And the question is what, well, here one might ask the question, yeah. what was Pico's challenge right. to celestial order? And here we can say two very specific things. Um, uh, well, uh, in, in one of the chapters of his book, he, first of all, he says, um, astrologers disagree about the, um, the influences that should be associated with the individual planets. So why should Saturn be cold and dry or capable of producing cold and dry effects? Mm-hmm. Why shouldn't it be hot? Mm-hmm. Uh, in other words, he challenges the association of physical attributes to the planets on the grounds that the, the attributions are arbitrary. Right. That's kind of the key point there. And then in the same chapter, he says, you know, the astronomers disagree about the order of Mercury and Venus. Um, well, since Mercury and Venus have physical attributes associated with them, you put those two things together, and what you see is that um, th- there's uncertainty. There, the uncertainty about the ordering affects the uncertainty of the influences associated with the, the planets in their arrangement. Mm-hmm. Um, so the question is, did Copernicus know that passage of Pico? I mean, let's say he, let's acknowledge he knew the book. Okay. Uh, let's acknowledge that he knew it when he was in Bologna. Okay. Um, now, the next thing is, uh, if, if, if those two points are conceded, did he know this particular part of the book? Yeah. And um, there, I think the answer is, is wrongly affirmative. Okay. And ironically, the reason for saying that is that it's based on evidence coming from Edward Rosen. Uh, who himself was the great um, defender of Copernicus's astrological purity. Yeah. Uh, uh, and I'm happy to tell you what that evidence is if you think that your listeners might be interested in it. <laughs> um, I think we can leave that for them to read okay. and discover for themselves. Okay. Um, okay. And I think return maybe to the more general point, because I think one of the things that you do I mean, there's, again, there's so much going on in this book. And one of the things you do quite well is map out um, the conceptual spaces that are available to these, these, you know, thinkers interested in the sciences of stars at various points. Um, I think genre is a good way of getting at that, actually, um, that you use. I mean, it's not just a conceptual space. It's also the 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 connections between institutions, patrons, um, and the publications that comprise the literature of the science of the stars. Um, You know, and also the ways that the um, concerns about credibility um, and the hierarchy of knowledge structure the conceptual space. Um, And again, you show that there's a lot of diversity. So I think there's this story 
we get told, you know, I got told when I took my course on, uh, on my Plato de NATO class, that <laughs> coming out of Aristotle, there's a story, there's a story about how you produce knowledge. And astronomy is a sort of a second grade science that has to get its first principles from physics or from natural philosophy or what have you. Um, but you can kind of show that, you know, there's much more going on than that. Um, Copernicus, for, for instance, uses Horatian aesthetics to shape the papal reception of De, De Refusilonibus. Um, and, but there's sort of, it doesn't seem like there's no, any agreement about how knowledge needs to be made or, or even to circulate. So, so the questions that Copernicus is most interested in aren't always the questions that everybody else is most interested in. And perhaps the most popular Copernican document is the Pretenic Tables. Um, written for Albrecht of Prussia, I think. Right. Um, and, you know, this is not to mention that there's all the, the Precious Theologica, all the stuff that's about recovering the knowledge of Hermes Trismegistus um, going on at the same time, right? Um, so I guess, I don't know, what are, what are some of the reasons that people are interested in the varieties of Copernicus and how, of Copernicanism and how are they shaping themselves for their patrons and their audiences. Does that make sense as a question? Yes, it does. Okay. It does. So, <clears throat> um, you use the term conceptual space, and yeah. that's a good term to use. Yeah. Uh, you know, I am, in other words, this is a book that does uh, put a value on, um, on the conceptual, yeah. but not at the expense of the Social and the local, yeah. so that's the other side of of the uh, of the coin. Um, and yes, it's correct to say that I'm I do spend quite a bit of time pointing out the the structuration of knowledge in, in this period, and it is hierarchical. Um, and one might even say that it's still hierarchical, in spite of the word inter interdisciplinary. Yeah. Inter meaning between, yeah. rather than above and below. But um, that, that's a, you know, I'll just make that as an aside. Uh, so your question really was, well, what were the, you know, the different uses, perhaps, to which Copernicus's theory was put? Am I, am I hearing that correctly? Yeah, yeah that's okay. a good bit. And, and I guess sort of like, what are the, maybe genres, maybe something more broad than genre, um, that these uses were lived in or practiced upon or something like that? Um, well, let's take, let's take the Britannic tables since okay. you've mentioned that. Now, um, uh, essentially, the, uh, the earliest reception of Copernicus's book was at Wittenberg, yeah. and it's not surprising because that's where Redicus had a position. So after he left Copernicus's house, he took the manuscript to Nuremberg, he found someone to guide the manuscript through the press and make it a published book. And then he went back to Wittenberg, where he was loaded down with administrative duties, teaching duties. Mm-hmm. Um, and he wasn't there very long. Uh, but while he was there, uh, he, he worked with Erasmus Reinhold. And uh, Reinhold <coughs> got very interested in Copernicus's book. We still have his copy personal copy of Copernicus. It's in, it's at the uh, Royal Astronomical Observatory in Edinburgh, 
filled with annotations. Mm-hmm. Um, and essentially, Reinhold worked his way through the whole book, caught many errors, but also took the numbers and reconstituted them in the form of planetary tables. In other words, what would these new models generate in the way of uh, tables that could then be used to compare um, other kinds of tables, ephemerides in particular, that are useful in particular latitudes. So um, the Britannic tables really became the, the premier planetary tables from 1551 onward. And just to interject, I mean, these, the progenic tables and the ephemerides, they're useful largely for casting nativities and other um, prognostications, right? Well, first and foremost, yeah. useful for plotting the positions of the planets. Okay. And from that, of course, you can, uh, you can use them for purposes of astrological prognostication. Um, they need not be used for, for astrology, but I think that continues to be the, the major motive okay. for turning to the Britannic tables. Um, and I do have, you know, a pretty long discussion about how the tables were produced, uh, Reinhold's uh, financial problems, mm-hmm. the to support the project, uh, reluctance that was eventually overcome. Uh, then Reinhold died uh, of the plague and wasn't able to follow through uh, on the on the um, future um, effects of the of the Copernic tables. But I would say this is how most people in the 16th century came to know Copernicus, because his name was explicitly associated with these tables. So people use them for calculation. But the key point here is that you could use them for calculation without making the Earth a planet. Mm-hmm. The Earth rest. Mm-hmm. That essentially provided a conservative reading of the book. Mm-hmm. meant that uh, <clears throat> the, the, the more radical claims were, were postponed. Mm-hmm. So one of the interesting questions then is, well, why did that ever change? What what caused people to start reading Copernicus's book differently? And so there I I introduce generational uh, explanations, which are important. Um, and in addition to that, the appearance of a new star and a comet in the 1570s, which I regard as very significant mm-hmm. story. So let me just say by way of um, referring back to our earlier discussion that here's where I'm, I'm writing this thing differently than Kuhn. For mm-hmm. Kuhn, the story begins with Copernicus yeah. and goes up to Newton, and Copernicus, Copernicus's theory is at the center of the discussion all the way through. Yeah. Whereas what I want to put at the center of the discussion is the the ongoing controversy over astrological prognostication yeah. in which Copernicus is just a resource. Yeah. And that's the that's a big difference in the way of thinking about the period. So now if you think about it that way, and then suddenly these these completely unpredicted events occur. Yeah. 
you know, suddenly a comet, where did it come from? Uh, How high is it? Is it above the moon? Is it below the moon? Those, in a way you could say, there's nature pushing on the perceptual apparatus of observers and causing them to, you know, somehow make sense of what's, of these sensory impressions to make sense of it in the context, in the context of, of their, their prevailing categories of knowledge. Yeah. So that's, that's a very important turning point. Yeah. I appreciated the, the, the stuff about the novel, heavenly novelties in, I mean, in that fashion, but also in the way that I think one of the things you're trying to do is to put, um, kind of history back into the history of science. And to me, that sometimes means, um, that you you sort of demonstrate the contingencies of things, and you, you sort of don't get anything more contingent than these seemingly random astral events. Yes. Um, but you use them particularly well, I think, uh, to show that the novelties cause kind of, I mean, fundamentally, maybe they're just, it causes disagreement about um, epistemic priority, about who gets to explain these events and why. Yes. Um, can you say a little bit about that and maybe sort of it's important in the long durée story? Right. Good question. Um, well, who else was paying attention to the heavens but all these astrological prognosticators? Yeah. Right? They had the tools. and um, uh, But here were, here were two events in the 1570s that they hadn't predicted. So, so what are you going to do with that? Yeah. And what are you going to make of it? Um, well, most of them uh, concluded that we'll take the, the case of the comet that it was below the moon. Okay. Uh, based on parallactic measurements. Well, if it's below the moon, if you're an Aristotelian and they were all Aristotelians, that means it's a meteorological event. Yeah. It's comparable to you know a hailstorm or a thunderstorm. Mm-hmm. Consequently. The explanatory apparatus that's relevant would be meteorological rather than celestial. Right. But you had a handful of, um, of observers, celestial practitioners, as I call them, uh, who concluded that it was above the moon. Yeah. Well, if it's above the moon, then that, of course, raises the question, what's, what, what kind of physical constitution would those entities have? Because everything above the moon is supposed to be perfect and changeless, but obviously the comet moves, it uh, has a tail, yeah. it has color, and so forth. And um, so, <clears throat> among the people who concluded that this was an entity above the moon, um, uh, you had Michael Maestlin and Thomas Diggs. They're both Copernicans. Yeah. Pico Brahe, as we know, adopts a kind of middle position, but he's also um, groping and engaging with the question, well, what difference does this all make for the organization of the planets? Mm-hmm. So there, I see a connection then between the way these, these celestial events were engaged and the willingness to um, entertain the some of the claims that Copernicus was making that had been ignored by the first generation of uh, people, and uh, so I think the second generation is you know it's very interesting in that respect. <coughs> um, 
the third generation is the generation of Kepler and Galileo. Yeah. And we don't usually think of them as being part of a generation. We usually think of them as being individuals. Yeah. And so that's another, you know, sense in which my conceptualization is trying to locate them in a, a story that has, you know, uh, connections and and uh, th- that is part of a common um, conceptual space. Right. So let me ask about Kepler because, yeah. I mean, so he's kind of the the second protagonist in the book, actually, um, and. You know, I mean, there's an exhaustive survey of all of the responses and engagements with Copernicus, but Kepler kind of emerges as the most engaging figure after Copernicus, and he's very similar to Copernicus, it seems like. Um, He's amongst the most humanistic of the figures trained. Um, He also seems to take, I mean, planetary order and and Copernicus' symmetry argument the most seriously, and that, like, he actually mathematizes it. uh, you know, he's third generation. He's an astro- astrological reformer. Um, so what's changed by the time Copernican is Copernican? Well, you, I think, don't think that it, it's not fair to talk about a Copernicanism, but I guess how is Copernican is, how is Kepler's Copernicanism different than Copernicus's own? Well, by the time you get to Kepler, okay. um, you know, uh, one of the sort of crucial interpretive wedges that I bring in at this point is who Kepler studied with and where. Okay. Uh, well, he was a student of Michael Maestlin, well-known, well-known fact. But uh, Maestlin had his own copy of, of De Revolutione, both heavily, heavily annotated. Um, <clears throat> much of what I have to say about Maestlin is based upon a study of the annotations okay. and. I suggest that, in fact, Kepler was given access to Maestlin's copy okay. with all the annotations so that it influenced Kepler's own um, understanding of Copernicus. Right. And I even uh, engage in a little counterfactual exercise, you know, speculating, well, what if Kepler had gone to, you know, Budapest or uh, Paris or any other European university, uh, would he have turned out the same way? Well, I suggest no. I, mm-hmm. I think that there was something very specific to to his um, relationship with Mestlin at Tübingen. Mm-hmm. And, um, and in fact, at the end of the book, I, <clears throat> I uh, extract a general thesis yeah. about master-disciple relations. Right. And so I think that's, you know, this is one of the places we can point to the, to, to that kind of relationship, the master-disciple relationship, where Kepler is, um, you know, kind of absorbs what Maestlin has to teach him, but he's, he's, by comparison, completely uninhibited in what, in what he's willing to do. Right. He's so, willing to really press the envelope, as we would say today. Yeah, so Maestlin never makes prognostications. Kepler does, for instance. Um, mm-hmm. And Kepler starts looking for physical causes, and Maestlin right. doesn't. But, so what does he get from Maestlin that's so, that's so significant? Well, I think what he gets is Maestlin had been very um, uh, impressed mm-hmm. by the argument from harmony that okay. Copernicus makes. And for, for 
know, this is the kind of interesting epistemological question. Um, Copernicus himself does not provide a knockdown argument for his theory. If he had, it would have been, you know, probably more people would have been attendant to it and followed it earlier. Right. But, um, so what Copernicus says logically is if you assume the Earth is a planet, then the planets form, fall into this very nice orderly relationship where the periods of revolution are proportional to the distances. Mm-hmm. Um, that argument from the perspective of a good explanation, <clears throat> you know, has the virtue of being a unifying explanation, uh, but it's not a, it's not a proof that the Earth is a planet moving around the sun. It's not a definitive proof. Mm-hmm. Or in Aristotelian terms, it's not a necessary demonstration. So why is that, why does that impress Maestlin enough to make him an adherent of Copernicus, whereas it doesn't have the same uh, value for other practitioners? That, to me, is an interesting epistemological question. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it is, and, um, and I think in turn that influenced Kepler, who then went on to ask, well, okay, so if this is really the way the planets are or- ordered, uh, can't we come up with some stronger reasons? Mm-hmm. Physical reasons, metaphysical reasons, theological reasons, that's basically Kepler's problematic. Mm-hmm. That's, that's, the, that's what he spends the rest of his life doing, is trying to um, develop uh, a much more powerful defense than Meslin. So Meslin looks very uh, hesitant and overly cautious by comparison with Kepler. Yeah. And Kepler's quite isolated in this, right? Pardon me? Kepler, I mean, Kepler is quite isolated in, in oh. looking for this, the physical causes. Yes. We're, we're thinking about everything, or yes. theological yes. causes even as well, right? Right. He, he's, he's, um, he's, he's completely unique in the yeah. way he proceeds. Um, and uh, and people at the time thought of him that way <laughs> as a little bit off. Yeah. And we know that from the letters that have survived. Yeah. So it's not just us as moderns saying, oh, Kepler is kind of weird. Yeah. Uh, fanciful is the word that William Huell used in 1837. But, yeah. uh, you know, people in 1597 were having similar kinds of reactions, although for their own reasons. Yeah. Um, and I would say we might include Galileo amongst those who thought, thought that, that Kepler's reasons really were kind of like looking in the wrong place. Yeah, yeah let me, I mean, because you say that they are both third generation, um, the third generation after Copernicus, and there are people that um, we often think about in isolation, and, and I don't think that's only, you know, by accident, it's also that they just stop talking to each other at a certain point. But I think yes. it's a useful. This is a useful moment to think about um, the stuff you have to say about the kinds of social relationships involved in early early modern um, knowledge production. So I think, you know, that Kepler is a little bit strange. Is not necessarily a drawback for something like for the Rudolphine court, for instance. But I think. Right. Um, so much of the recent, his- well, I mean, the dominant historiography on um, early modern knowledge production has focused 
on core patronage systems on the one hand, or on sort of gentlemanly conduct slightly later on. And you want to say that there's sort of significantly more going on, um, but also that, 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 that the more going on kind of explains relationships between Kepler and Galileo. Right? Um, yes, I think that's, <coughs> that's right. Yeah. Um, let me put this, uh, let me kind of put this somewhat more philosophically, and that is to say that you know, I, going back over 30 years uh, ago when I published an article called The Astronomer's Role in the 16th yeah. Century, um, you know, I suggested there that the, the main uh, loci uh, of scientific activity, well, in astronomy at least, were the universities and the courts, and that the courts were social spaces in which um, uh Knowledge producers, if you like, uh, had greater freedom mm-hmm. um, than in the universities. Freedom from what? Well, from the hierarchical structuring of knowledge, mm-hmm. among other things. I would say also rhetorical freedom, mm-hmm. uh, freedom to write in genres that would have been restricted in the universities. Mm-hmm. Um, what I was careful to say in that 1980 article was that... Um, these social settings did not determine the social roles uh, of the the astronomer, and I've tried to make that a slightly more rigorous claim in the book by saying that uh, essentially the the, the courts uh, underdetermine the possibilities uh, of um, of knowledge and of theoretical commitments. So to say that is, well, nothing more than to say that two people in the same social setting can have quite opposite ideas. Right. That the, that the social setting doesn't determine the ideas that they hold. Right. And I think that's essentially my, um, you know, something I'm kind of emphasizing quite strongly in the book, that, yes, we want to pay attention to universities, courts, uh, and courts as as fundamental um, centers of of knowledge creation and argumentation, yeah. but we don't want we want to be careful not to be reductive right. about that. And that is that's you know something I think is you know is is very important to appreciate. Um, so with regard to Kepler and Galileo, yeah. there you have a situation where here. You know, Kepler in 1597, he is in a very vulnerable position, teaching in a little Lutheran school in southern Austria, trying to get the patronage of Tycho Brahe in, in Prague, which he ultimately succeeds in getting, and then some. And uh, Galileo is already well-established as a professor at Padua, with three years earlier in Pisa, and, uh, you know, they have a couple of, well, they basically have a couple of exchanges with one another, and then that's it. Yeah. Then, then there's no more. And in the literature, this silence, I think, has been inadequately dealt with. Yeah. Uh, and I've tried to uh, address that, you know, as, as carefully as I could, given what we have available. Yeah. And to say that, in fact, Actually, they were they were keeping tabs on each other. Right. They were following each other. Right. And um, 
so consequently, the, the, the you know the silence. We we have to try to explain why it was that Galileo didn't respond. Kepler's right. entreaty to right. join him, you know, in a kind of Copernican cause, and uh, um, <clears throat> so. Uh, one of the explanations that's been offered for this uh, is in the work of a very good Italian historian named Massimo Bucciantini. He says, well, you know, we have to pay close attention to the Counter-Reformation environment, it's heavy post-Council of Trent uh, atmosphere, um, where there is there's an atmosphere of political surveillance, uh, People's uh, loyalties are, are being tested all the time. And uh, so Galileo gets a book from somebody he doesn't know. It's Kepler. Never heard of him before. And then he sees when he opens the book that Kepler is a student of Michael Maestlin. Mm-hmm. And Maestlin uh, is a known quantity, is an author, because he was a big defender of the... Um, well, he was, he was actually a... Um, an opponent of Christopher Clavius. Mm-hmm. Clavius was the Pope's astronomer who mm-hmm. had reformed the calendar, the Gregorian calendar, and Mestlin had gotten into big polemics with Clavius. So, Buccantini says <coughs> Mestlin would have been, you know, uh, uh, a hot, uh, you know, a hot name to be in a book associated with Copernicus. And consequently, Galileo would have been very cautious in responding to Kepler about this. Well, you know, I think it's it's a, it's an interesting suggestion, yeah. uh, but I think there are ways in which it could have been handled at the time by Galileo. First of all, Kepler's book was not on the on the index of yeah. prohibited books. Uh, if it had been. And the index might have said, okay, you've got to cross out the name Mestlin wherever you see it. <laughs> Which is a pretty simple way to handle the problem. Right. But that didn't happen. Right. It didn't happen. So I basically suggest that Bruno, Giordano Bruno's execution yeah. is, is a crucial event here. And it's not just the execution. And here I think I've, you know, I've made a contribution that I think is, is important. So this part of the discussion, that is that in 1603, yep. three years after Bruno was burnt at the stake, all of his books were put into the most severe category of prohibited literature. And anyone who was found with a book in their possession, you know, was subject to corporal punishment. Okay. That, I think, is really, really relevant to, to Galileo's behavior. Okay. And um, and it would explain, to me at least, it explains why he would have been silent on the Copernican question, and why he might have held off further correspondence with Kepler. Okay. So then the telescope, which comes just a few years later, yeah. provides a new moment for him to maybe become public on yeah. this issue. Maybe I'm misremembering, but I thought it would also had something to do with your sort of diagnosis of Galileo as someone kind of very set in master-student relationships and 
Kepler approaching him sort of outside of that 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 idiom of relation um, yeah. as yeah, well. You've, you've got that exactly right. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, I and in fact that is the way I, I read the relationship. I mean, Galileo, I think, basically treated Kepler as you know as a student. Yeah. As someone he could blow off. <laughs> yeah. And um, and I also suggest that that is the way he ends up treating the Pope. Yeah. As well. Yeah. And that this kind of. Yeah, in the dialogues. Yeah. Yeah. One step too far. Yeah. And um, so I, I see, in other words, it's basically an argument about a pattern of relationships. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. But. But I mean, you do argue for taking that pattern of relationships seriously amongst um, the scholars of the stars, and also taking academic academic friendship seriously um, in mm-hmm. in. The, as the kinds of so, social relationships that matter for making knowledge in the early modern period. Yeah. Um, we've, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, why don't you tell us what you're working on now? Um, well, I am continuing the, to study the theme of prognostication, um, you know, in the period after Newton. So in the last year, I've been working on uh, prognostication in in the 18th century and even into the 19th century uh, in Europe, and I've been particularly interested in the question of well, what happens when astrology gets rivals. <laughs> you know, in other words, there are there are good reasons uh, why astrology um, um, lost its social status. You know, after a period of about 150 years, yeah. it was already under attack in 1496. Yeah. Okay, so that's, I think that's well established. Um, but even though it was under attack, the people who were attacking it, uh, many of them were trying to fix it. <laughs> and, um, and by the time you get to Newton, Basically, you have a generation of people, and I'm speaking now of the sort of high-end reformers, mm-hmm. who stopped trying to fix the science of the stars. Mm-hmm. And Newton has his own reasons, you know, which are theological reasons. And he doesn't think God needs any intermediaries to intervene in the world. He can do it directly. Yeah. Um, so, um, uh, so the question is, well, you know, at what in what forms do we start to get a, uh, a science of the social realm that's not grounded in the stars? Yeah. And uh, I think one of the arenas is in the area of weather prediction, yeah. which uh, Jan Galinsky has studied very nicely uh, for Britain. Um, and... Uh, uh, but I, I'm also interested in um, the history of prognostication in the social sciences into the 20th century. So one of the one of the cases that that I've spent a little bit of time exploring is that of Soviet studies. Right. Um, and here you have an example where <coughs> Soviet studies was basically the creature of the Second World War. Yeah. And, um, and very much supported by the CIA, um, 
uh, both on the left and on the right, politically, there was a failure to predict the fall of the Soviet Union. Right. So it's a failed prediction. Yeah. Um, the other thing they failed to predict was the fall of Soviet studies. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I actually think that, you know, looking at, you know, cases over a long period of time against the backdrop of the period that I've studied in the Copernican question is, you know, continues to draw my attention. That's what I'm interested in. Thank you very much for talking to us today. It was an enormous pleasure. And thanks for your excellent questions. I'm glad you enjoyed them. That was my conversation with Robert Westman about his new book, The Copernican Question. As I said a couple of times, there's a lot going on in this book. Um, and Westman is to be commended for the way that he's able to build a multifaceted analysis of um, the ways that deep epistemological and methodological problems are interconnected with uh, patronage networks and university education um, and the generally traumatic time of the late 15th and early 16th century. Um, it's a great book that will reward careful study. I'm Patrick Slaney for the New Books Network page for Science, Technology, and Society. <laughs>